0: As, as New Englanders, we're, um, we have Puritan roots. Um, we're capable of being harshly and extremely judgmental, I'd say. Um, I find that every day when I walk around sunny California, everyone's smiling, getting along, accepting. Um, and I stride forward with that Puritan air of disapproval and, you know, displeasure uh, and cast an eye over everything I see and find much wanting and little agreeable. And so those those are qualities that I really value because if I didn't have them then I'd be happy and happiness is boring right
1: Welcome to Landline Podcast. I'm a professional voiceover artist that Alex could never have actually gotten, unless I was his friend from 10 years ago. You're lucky, because on today's episode, it's Saul vs. Alex, Alex vs. Saul. Two white men talking about themselves. Featuring a career elitist trying to find a purpose for his life. A Jewish male shopaholic. As if that's news? You're listening to Landline.
2: Do you see? So we want nice, big things like that. So you see how close I am to the mic? And this is Mike. You know how we used to talk like this in the mic? This one, you talk just like that. I know, Saul. I I like. I have put so much effort into thinking about this specific podcast and the fact that I forgot something. Let's start with that. Forgetting things. Hey. Every- trying to get a perfect situation and realizing nothing will ever be perfect. Hey everyone, this is Alex. And Saul. Welcome to another edition of Saul vs. Alex, Alex vs. Saul. Very exciting episode taping. As you can hear, we're in studio as a 18-wheel truck approaches us. Today, the studio is a 2011 Subaru Outback 2.6 liter. It's no leather or anything. There is an automatic seat on the driver's side. But we are parked overlooking Boston Harbor and Logan Airport. Saul's just flown in from well so why don't you tell the team tell the listeners your last 12 to 36 hours you keep calling yesterday last night but it's actually two days ago why is that
0: I don't really know what day it is Um, I know that 36 hours ago I was in California and then I was in Las Vegas Nevada and then I was back in California for about three hours and now I'm in Boston not really knowing what happened, but sort of feeling like I've been kidnapped and taken to um a Whitey Bulger hangout over at the port. So, um it feels good. I mean, last time last time we were side by side doing this, I think it was July fourth weekend. It was a nice summer day and we were watching the birds chirp and doing all that fun stuff off a of front porch in Hanover. And by contrast, this is bleak. That's the only word for it. Bleak but it's gloriously bleak and I couldn't be happier.
2: Yeah, we can see, shout out to Spirit Airlines, Chris Baker's favorite carrier. We can see the Spirit Airline taxiing on the runway. There looks like a commuter jet is approaching, uh, doing the final approach. We just saw some sort of empty tanker ship go by. Um, There looks like maybe there's a whale watch coming through, which is, you know, a horrible um, thing to do on a day like this. And we are just kind of—we're in front of a fallen-down, rusty chain-link fence with barbed wire lazily draped over the top. And it is late November. It snowed last night. And we're together because Saul came in. I picked him up at the airport. He's waiting for his brother to arrive so they can travel in a rental car together to New Hampshire— but the point of this podcast, other than us being together and discussing a lot of interesting things, is to talk about initially East Coast, West Coast. So, one of the things that is facing me as a person, and I don't know if I can speak for everyone, is where to live. I'm approaching the end of my graduate school career. I. Moved out west after college where I met my lovely wife. We moved back east for around 18 months. We moved back west for around two and a half years, and now we've been back east for two years. And we are now fully um, torn between the two places. I can name positives and negatives on both sides, and the list is too long for this podcast. But Saul, you just flew in for a holiday period, and that was one of the that's always one of the big catalysts of my mind for a reason to stay closer to family is to not have to only travel on the holidays to see them and have all that stress and anxiety and build up around making a visit at home perfect. Um, But I just want to know, as someone who is living out west with a couple of my other great, great friends and who has chosen to just go full cross-dresser, not like living two hours from home, not living within driving distance, not living a couple towns over, but living as far, you know, far as possible within the continuous United States versus a lot of our friends who have actually chosen to live in our hometown. I don't see a lot of middle ground happening. So as a 30 something, someone who has to settle down, who has either a marriage or a child or just, you know, professional goals to stay put. Can you give us your unique take on living so far away and coming home for the holidays?
0: I think that, um, I think it's something everyone struggles with. I think that if you're somewhere other than where you grew up, then you're always going to be thinking about, um, the sort of conflicting identities that you have as essentially a transplant. Um, I can definitely state that I've not come to terms with it and probably never will, but I think maybe that applies to most people, um, I think that always you're kind of thinking, um, what am I doing here, wherever here is? Now, the interesting thing is it's largely psychological in some ways, because when I think about me living in New York, for example, after college, uh, I actually go home to New Hampshire more frequently living in California than I did in New York that year. Um, and I've actually talked to plenty of people who still live in New York and places you know, of a similar distance. And they tell me the same thing. They don't it's not like they're there once a month. It's not like they're there, you know, on weekends or something like that. But it's that psychological ability I honestly think uh to be in the same time zone, to be able to get into your car and get on the road and end up in your driveway 5 hours later. Um that's a different, you know, that's a sort of comforting thing. Um so for me, obviously having to buy an expensive JetBlue t- ticket every time I want to come back. Uh, it makes it a, a little harder to sort of um imagine myself as being uh, fluid between the coasts. I think the good part about both of us is that we've basically admitted that we'll never be happy anywhere because we'll always be thinking about the other places. What do you think about that, Alex?
2: Well, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I think finding happiness is not where you live. It's actually some sort of combination of therapy and meditation and, uh, exercise and kind of making peace with your ultimate mortality, right? That's, those are the big issues that landline podcast sets out to solve. Um, no, I mean, I agree with you. So then it becomes, so as someone with a partner, you and I are different in the sense that I have a, I have a, another person that I live with consistently that is, that I'm married to and I now have a baby on the way. The question then becomes if i 'm miserable everywhere I go, then should I just defer to my partner 's choice of where to live, which is the West Coast, or at least in theory is the West Coast, because i 'll be just as miserable closer to home now i 'm not miserable like suicide watch, but you know finding faults in the way in the place I live is so simple and easy for me. Shouldn't I just find faults in a place that another person is happy rather than finding faults in a place that another person is not happy and then have both of us be miserable? Or am I actually fighting because I do think I can be more happy? And, like, I like the gray sky I'm looking at right now. I like the fact that I know these seabirds and that I've swam in this ocean, although not in Boston Harbor. I see a Nantucket lightship over there, an old-fashioned... what are those called? Uh, frying pan over there. The light ship. Um, I just saw a whale watch go by. And here comes a Look, here comes a Cape Air flight that probably came from Nantucket. These are all things that are part of my existence, part of my youth, part of my identity. And I think that's one thing I've uh, broached with my new therapist is like if you end up leaving where you're from and if you end up changing what you do, who are you? So I think that's my big fear is let's say I did move away and settle down someplace else. I'm no longer the person I thought I'd been. And so then you're really almost nobody in a way. Are you anybody if you're no longer the person you used to be?
0: Well, you know, I, I'd say it's a little analogous to um, the sort of uh, the political situation and the transfer of power, you know, we've been seeing. Um where for the last eight years, the Republicans have not been in the driver's seat. And so they've kind of defined themselves as being a party of opposition. And I'm not saying that, you know, as praise or critique just as a sort of fact that they've they've defined themselves by by what they don't want and where they're not. Um, and now, obviously, there's going to be a shift and suddenly they're driving the car and they have to start defining themselves by who are who they are and what they're doing. So I think about that a little with you that when you're on the West Coast, you're able to basically define yourself by all the things that you're not. You can live in a city of Portland and go through a list of 20 different reasons mentally why you're completely identifiable by all the things that you are that everyone else in Portland is not. And I think probably at least 18 of those would be completely accurate. But now if you're on the East Coast and if it's your home turf in your town then that sort of puts you in the driver's seat, if you follow. I think that suddenly you have to start making choices to define yourself uh, based on what you want to be having, and you're no longer the party of opposition. So for you to step back west um, allows you to find your identity um, by the fact that it's the opposite of everything around you.
2: Yeah, there's something to that. There's the sort of archetype of the person who is the other in their place. Um, but it, it you know, and in I'd say in movies or books, which you will be able to recall much better than I, but it's almost it's a little bit of like the lost generation thing even, where it's like all these Americans went to Paris in order to be the fish out of water, right? And um or you see whoever like There's the, you know, the Jew that lives with all the Italians or the, you know, whatever the 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 Russian who moves to Miami or I don't know, just any of these people who have chosen to be the different thing, because then you're then you are like a unique entity within your community and you're able to sort of blissfully watch all of the culture around you happen in a way that doesn't make you be a part of it you are you're an observer rather than a participant which right now based on this world is starting to look more and more attractive so i mean this is a, this is sort of a, a long leap to jump but in some ways let's say i commit to leaving where i'm from to discover a new place then why go to a place that's basically 3000 miles away than where I'm from, but it's almost the same thing. I mean, like the Volvos are the same. The beards are the same. The flannel shirts are the same. The mountains are bigger. The people are different. You're talking
0: about Oregon specifically.
2: Yeah, so why not, like, move to the south of France if I'm going to be 3,000 miles away? So, okay, we can come up with reasons why, like uh, getting a job, not speaking French, uh, feeling, like, very distant, feeling... Like, you're leaving... Even though sometimes America is so hard to support, leaving that comfort zone of its culture would be very difficult. I'm sure it would be lonely at some points. And newsflash, Europe is heavily depressed right now given its economic and cultural situation. Um, But at some point, deciding to sort of, like, forge your own path... and So there's two kind of Scotsmen. There's the Scotsman that stays home and tends to his flock. And there's the Scotsman that, like is at the head of the gushing geyser of oil in West Texas in 1823. So if I'm going to be that second Scotsman because my beautiful and intelligent wife is on earth to explore rather than sort of to stay, then why not explore someplace that's a little more exciting than basically another version of Norwich, Vermont with larger mountains?
0: Well, you make a good case for the second Scotsman. I mean... Who who doesn't want to strike oil? So definitely. I think that um I mean let's just take I mean let's take this personal. Um let's put you in Portland in six months time. What's what's your mentality like? What's your
2: mood like? Um and what are your feelings about what you left behind? Well, the morning buns there are gonna be good as the one I'm eating right now. Hold on one second. Never good radio when people eat. Sometimes people think it's funny when they're doing it, but it just never comes out right. Um, okay. What's going on when I get there? A, a lot of great outdoor time. Big positive. B, um, great food and drink. Um, C, relatively sumptuous environmental situation. Large rosemary bushes on the side of the street um great seasonal food um i know i said lots of good places to eat and drink but i mean beyond that almost like a nice whoa just quick side note here comes some sort of police patrol boat Saul, what do you think that thing is or is it a harbor master i think it's a police boat he's that might be bulger for all we know he's on the inside um so there's a lot of positive environmental reality there um some good friendships, the whole nine yards. Uh, Probably, you know, decent opportunities in terms of work. What I'm leaving behind specifically is a clannish relationship with my immediate family as I introduce my own child into the world. So whether I like it or not, a lot of my most or all, all many of my characteristics are a, a direct result of the environment. I believe the environment that I was grown, I was grown in, and so all of a sudden I'm gonna have a child that was grown in Portland, not in New England. When it seems that all of my uh, all of the sort of mentalities that I like the most in the world are from New England, the brains that I can sit across from at a dinner table and connect with seem to be consistently from New England. Now, a lot of people would say, well, you just move out west where there's a ton of New Englanders and hang out with New Englanders. Um, that's true. I guess there's some fear of my kid being something considerably different than I was and that I'm not carrying on the lineage that I was given. I mean, are these crazy thoughts? Are these? That's the thing. I think in this world today, people are starting to reject you know, where you're from and who, what blood you have and what your ethnicity is. And we're supposed to all be like the same. We're supposed to be some sort of sexless, colorless, you know, genderless entity that has no uh, affinity towards its original clan. But I feel some major defense of my clan and wanting to establish my clan more because I feel like my clan is one of the good clans on earth. I think there are so many bad clans that sort of that politically motivated, sensible, moral, ethical New Englander is something that this world needs more of. I don't know. Maybe I'm just pumping pumping myself up way too much.
1: Look,
0: as as a fellow New Englander, I think that um, we have great, great qualities. And I'll let our listeners decide whether I'm saying we in the sense of me and you or we in the sense of an entire um you know, region of the country, but I'm probably talking about the former. But I think that, um, look, we're, as as New Englanders, we're, um, we have Puritan roots. Um, we're capable of being harshly and extremely judgmental, I'd say. Um, I find that every day when I walk around sunny California, everyone's smiling, getting along, accepting, um, and I stride forward with that Puritan air of disapproval and you know, displeasure, uh, and cast an eye over everything I see and find much wanting and little agreeable. And so those, those are qualities that I really value because if I didn't have them, then I'd be happy and happiness is boring. Right. But beyond that, um, I do think that New Englanders, we, we have a hardy work ethic. Um, I think we have clearly, uh, defined, um, upward social and professional ambitions. Um, I think that whether or not you've blue blood or anything like that as a New Englander you're constantly trying to scrape and claw your way up that ladder as opposed to the uh Pacific Northwest where everyone's just kind of mellow and they'll go you know play a soccer game and then have a craft pint and talk about you know who scored which goal and call it an evening that's my impressions anyway so I think that in terms of um What you're talking about, which is protecting your clan and protecting your turf. um, I don't know that you want to sort of copy-paste your clan into a new part of the world that maybe um, is not going to appreciate it as much. Maybe, Maybe you have to double down right here and become the third Scotsman who is tending his flock and then falls into an
2: oil well that was in his backyard the entire time. Well, um, I think we will uh, smoothly transition to other topics, um, but I do love where we're going. I just want to say, I want to pose this one question. Do you think it's possible? I mean, the alternative is you become bicoastal, where you, then people do it. I have a professor next semester who I am um, hoping will help me on my big television program idea um, where I explain to the world how to eat sustainably in a fun and creative way. Um, but. He lives in Santa Fe and Westport, Mass. Those are the his two places he calls home. And my only question for you as someone who does travel to and fro, do you feel as if you can still have a sense of community when you're shifting between two places?
0: Yeah, I mean a hundred percent. And you're you know, you're talking to someone who is actively thinking about simply relocating to a small desert compound north of las vegas but i yeah i i think that you know you home is where the hearth is or maybe it's heart. i don't really care um but i think that the point is that you can put down you know if not roots you can put down you know boots anywhere you want and you can have that community um I spend three or four months this summer living on the East Coast. I've just spent three months back in California, and yeah, I, I feel like you can you can have two worlds sort of um, one stuck on each end of the map, and they can both kind of keep on rotating and revolving, uh, whether you want them to or not. So I'm I I think it's doable, absolutely, and I think bicoastalism is a great way to go if you can swing it. Obviously, it's hard to swing, which is probably why more people don't do it. Um, and you pay a lot more to airlines and you sit on a lot more uh, red eyes going back and forth across the country. And if I'm rambling, I blame that exact thing. But overall, um, I would say that bicoastalism to me is one of
2: the great lures of modern American society. I think it's a holy grail. So I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna sh- give you the mic. We're doing one mic here. Quick update: You're listening to Landline Podcast, Alex versus Saul, Saul versus Alex. We are on we are on the shores of the Boston Harbor Channel. We are overlooking Logan Airport. We just saw another police boat. I don't know what all this police boating. We see some gas refineries uh, buffeted by a windmill. That's purely for show. I can see the Tobin Bridge and the gentleman in the hatchback. Honda Fit next to us is taking a nap. I feel like he might be a cab driver. Um, but really, if you ever want to go to this spot, you take a left after the Harpoon Brewery, and this is a great parking lot, it's so. all. I mean, I couldn't be happier about where... This is the big sky of the Northeast. you got to find the ocean and the airport. So giving you back the mic for one quick second, um, do you think that you can live a landline life by being by coastal Or is being by coastal something that comes... With FaceTime and all that bullshit that people are falling into, so that they never make a community with their physical surroundings,
0: I I think that I think it lends itself to landlineism, as we can call that um, new movement. I um I don't like FaceTime. I don't feel the need for it. I can say that the only person I FaceTime with is Tim, who lives thirty minutes up the street from me. Um I've never FaceTimed once with people thousands of miles away. And that's fine. I think voices cut it. Um if I didn't I wouldn't be talking into a microphone right now probably. But I think that um there's there's we don't, you don't need ten messaging apps on your phone. Um you don't need four different, you know, methods of video communication. You know, yes I could use Google or FaceTime or Skype or any number of video chat services. Uh but I don't think you need all that stuff. I think it's enough to be able to pick up the phone, call someone and make plans for them to fly out for a long weekend or go back or whatever it is. Uh yeah, some friendships are going to die on the vine. Um some of them the grapes are going to go a little sour. But ultimately, you know, you'll have a few that you're making wine from and that's going to taste pretty good uh no matter whether you drink
2: that wine once or twice a year or on a weekly basis. Now you have to get back to the airport to meet your brother for the rental car if this car broke down and you had to go across the water what it only looks like about a quarter mile across the water to the runway. What would your mode be? Would you try to Would you uber a boat?
0: I think what I'd probably do is uh assemble a raft uh made from oyster shells since we're sitting in the back parking lot of Pangea, one of the largest uh oyster wholesalers in the nation if not the world as far as i know and i would try to just uh build that boat and uh float my way across
2: pangea shellfish google it for all you landliners uh google it at home on your desktop computer make sure that computer is stationary in a community place so that your kids don't can't go upstairs and and inundate themselves with pornography too early in life Um, Well, switching gears, Saul, we only have a few minutes left because of your time constraints. I will take you directly to the rental car center so that you don't have to take a bus. And that way your brother can deal with the public transportation aspect. Um, And maybe you can even rent the car early and be wheels up mere seconds after he he leaves. Unless you're making him split it with you. Um, So... Basically, I think we have to do a couple political minutes here. So I want full disclosure. I, for about seven... People rely on me for political opinion because I worked for the Howard Dean campaign and because I, I guess, pontificate in a way that makes me think, makes me seem confident about my abilities. Oh, look, there's a wholesale retail truck. That guy's going to have a break or smoke a bowl. Um, So I said for about seven months... That I wasn't going to pay attention to the election because I knew that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and that I didn't want to waste the opportunity cost of paying attention to two boobs on TV who neither of whom I liked. And while everyone else was, you know, taking 45 minutes to an hour and a half of their day on various media outlets, wasting what could have been exercise or productivity or creating a podcast that no one listened to, um, they decided to consume. The media, which turned out to be massively wrong. You, on the other hand, very early on, and if I wasn't so lazy, I'd pull the clip from our earlier podcast. You guys can go back and listen. You you said right when Trump started winning um, uh, whatever they called primaries, you are like, why would he stop winning? He's won this. He said he's going to win. He's knocking him out. He's knocking her out. He's knocking him out. Why Why would anyone think he's going to lose? And I kept on saying there's no way he's going to be elected. So you have been vindicated, I think, much probably to your own chagrin. Um, but can you give us your sort of... I know you were pretty depressed on election night. We we briefly talked. Um, can you give us your point of view now and sort of what your plan is for the next four years vis-a-vis the new president?
0: Yeah. Wow. I know. Wow. Wow. Um. A wild ride. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, you know, in, um, I feel like I'm, you know, just sort of, uh, up there with a lot of, um, a lot of other Americans in the sense that I veer between a sort of, um, shrug and basically saying, well, look, the, um, you know, the forests, rivers, and mountains of the nation are pretty well fucked. And, um, you know, there's a lot more people not gonna be having health insurance, and you know, things like that. But you know, but whatever. Fundamentally, my day to day life is not really gonna, you know, change. Um, I remember an ex girlfriend of mine who you actually met in college uh, got in an argument with one of my good friends in college when Bush was elected the second time, because uh, she was you know, up in arms about it. And his response was your day to day life will not change an iota. Literally, there will be no difference in your life, wh- whoever's president. And she got annoyed by it because it was cynical. But at the same point, you know, it was an un- it was a realistic point that he was making. I um, mean, was going to if we go to war with three other Middle Eastern countries, that doesn't bring you any closer to having to go fight on the front lines, much less ration your butter. You're not going to feel the effect of any presidential action in your day-to-day life, no matter what. So, you know, you think about that a little bit with this situation, that Trump being president um, is not fundamentally going to, you know, change our day-to-day lives, barring any, you know, truly kind of catastrophic act, which is not entirely um you can't rule it out entirely but it's it, fairly unlikely um i will say also that i was reading uh yesterday an article in the new yorker um about venezuela and i just suggest it was a wonderful article but i suggest for anyone who feels bad about this go read about venezuela which is probably at this point in time the second most terrible place to be living in the entire world except arguably north korea uh, Venezuela is falling apart. They're an oil rich nation, uh, who has put all their eggs in one basket oil. And that doesn't seem to be working out well whatsoever. Uh, the president's despised and hated. Um, there's riots, there's crime that's spiraling out of control. It's an awful place to be. And so I read that article and I just sort of realized that, um, Look, we're in America and we should count ourselves lucky that we are there. And no matter who's in the White House and what decisions they're making, and a lot of us will frankly hate whatever decisions anyone's making from from that uh command center. That uh it's not, you know, it's it's not as bad as it could be. So, I try to sort of take it in stride. I think that I veer between a sort of moody pessimism um and a feeling that I should be doing a bit more to sort of stand up for some of the things I believe in, put my money where my mouth is in terms of some of my time donations and so forth. And I have tried to do that, but overall, I, I do try to take it in stride and say, um, we, you know, we as a country have gone through worse things than Donald Trump being presidency. Uh, and maybe I'll be eating my words a few years from now when I'm off fighting North
2: Korea. The Venezuelan aspect, uh, so I played in the finals of a NBA soccer league last night. It was a very uh, dramatic scene. We played Harvard Business School. It's the second time we've played them in this tournament. We did a round-robin and then playoffs, and we'd already won a tournament against Yale um, where we beat them, so we have a contentious relationship with them. But anyways, this gets back to the fact that there are three or four Venezuelans on my team, one of whom has gotten a red card the last two games because of his behavior, um, kicking at people's ankles and kneeing people behind the play. Um, and then another, and he's the second best player on the team. The first best player on the team is also Venezuelan. He is uh, more of the drama queen type. But I do have this weird sense that I, I, I'm not allowed to ask, but I don't understand. So they're like arriving to the game in Mercedes and they're at business school. And I've tried to kind of dip my toe in the like, how's everything at home question, but they don't really get into it. So are they just part of the people who are protected because they're so wealthy? Is that what's going on? And if they are, should I be sort of disgusted by them because they're not doing anything about saving their own country? Like, do you know enough about Venezuela to tell me that these people are bad because they're just living their life here? I know a tremendous
0: amount of, about Venezuela. Um look, I I think there's I think there's multiple, you know, there's multiple possibilities. Uh number number one, definitely a lot of the Venezuelans who have the money to get out have gotten out. Um and so these two could be examples of people whose families had the financial clout um to send them to Boston and Who knows if they have any intention of going back and, you know, maybe the family still lives there and maybe the family lives on Fifth Avenue. We just don't know. Um, So that could be one option. Number two, you could take the idealistic scenario and say these Venezuelans are here to learn what they can about business and entrepreneurship because they want to go back and spend a lifetime uh, putting those skills and experiences to work, helping to build their country up, uh, build its economy back up. I think that's probably um, a pretty generous assessment, but I, I don't think we can rule it out. Um, you could also just say that absolutely, these were a couple of kids whose families um, have the kind of government connections that are based you know, fundamentally around uh, markets like corruption and extortion, and that they are here to play, and their families have a lot of money that doesn't come from anywhere particularly good, and they utterly lack morality or conviction of any kind as seen by the number of red cards that have been handed out.
2: Well, as we approach the finish line here, I do want to end on a high note. It is Thanksgiving week. I think this podcast is going to go up either on Thanksgiving or the day after. Um, There's nothing more landline than Thanksgiving. There was a commercial out yesterday during during football where these two grandparents, I think, read their granddaughter's tweet About how she's going into hell because they don't have um, wireless or TV at their house. And they end up like getting an entire X7 package from Xfinity where their whole house gets wired. They get a brand new flat screen. Um, I don't know if they sold some of their 401k stock or if it was all on credit. Um, Probably 0% APR based on current interest rates. Maybe they are rich. But they didn't have the internet. I don't know. And then ultimately they tie all the ad up in a bow by saying, like, when the granddaughter arrives for Christmas, like, yay, they've got everything. And Grandpa, like, pulls up a um, scene in some gangster movie by doing voice-activated, like – call up onto the tv and xfinity like puts the scene up and everyone's happy because they can just look at their screens for the entire holiday weekend and no one will have to talk to each other or play board games or ask serious questions or teach each other family traditions so definitely don't that do that and i fundamentally believe that holidays like thanksgiving should be completely absent from screens um even your recipes Go the day before, print them out, or write them down on a little piece of paper and create an environment that is reflective of what we're celebrating, which is the land, our ability to create warmth and harvest and bounty in a season where, in order to get through, we're going to need to like eat. Eat and store our fat, and and bring in others from the cold, and celebrate with our community, and see family, and I don't just try it. It's a Thanksgiving holidays like Thanksgiving. Now you're gonna watch some football. Fine. I mean, at this point, the goalposts have moved so far down the line with technology that it seems quaint to be watching football. Um, we're going to put our foot, we're going to put the TV upstairs in an office that we're turning into the living room and that'll be the TV room. And even I can remember from my youth that there was always a room with a TV on at Thanksgiving. I'm not going to like bash everyone for watching TV on Thanksgiving. I know like Macy's day parade in the morning, but it's all just a vehicle for selling us crap that we don't need. And so I think everyone just needs to take a deep breath and Try for a day or two to go on a walk, play a board game, play cards. Even going to the movies is better than staying at home with your cell phone. Cooking, maybe understanding the elements of why we're eating some of the things we're eating. Um, Not necessarily just serving crap that they've seen from their family, but maybe realizing that Thanksgiving is supposed to be a celebration of the bounty around you. I'm serving Gulf of Maine farmed salmon and turning it into gravlax for the hors d'oeuvres with some oysters from Pangaea shellfish. Yeah, everyone's going to say Alex is on his high horse. Well, guess what, gang? We could, you can build a fire outside. You can play little games with each other. I don't know. Do whatever the fuck it is you're going to do. Ride bikes around the neighborhood if you live in a sunny place, but don't just bring your cell phone to Thanksgiving and then see everyone's Instagram page with their turkey try to do a social media free day and if you need support from someone other than me look up the article in the new york times from this sunday about how social media can cost you cur- your career written from the point of view from a computer scientist so so i don't know what you're going to do with all that info but please please support me or tell me i'm crazy just keep the ratings high on landline i couldn't have said it better myself i agree with every word um
0: I think Thanksgiving should be about people sitting around a table with each other. And, you know, the football thing I you mentioned, I think the important thing is that when you're watching a football game, you're watching the same thing. And therefore, it's a different kind of experience when you have five different people and each one has something else that they're looking at or seeing. So... Look, you know my aversion to card games, but I, I I'll get on board with the idea that entertainment should be found in cards and board games, um, or just in simple conversation. Uh I totally agree with you about the local thing. Um buy the stuff that's right around you, I'm all for that. I always try to experiment, do a couple new dishes each year that I have not done previously. Uh load the table up a bit more. Why the hell not? It's a good time for it. So, yeah, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Alex, I hope that I will see you for maybe a um, post-Thanksgiving podcast, maybe a little Friday morning coffee, sit by the Connecticut River or something like that if you
2: find your way up north. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Well done, Saul. And as the – I'm sure your brother's been the one texting you from the airport saying he came in early. Um, But here, as the red tugboat arrives to pull this black tanker away – um. Thank you for listening to Landline Happy Thanksgiving There's a lot of love in the world There's a lot of good things to celebrate The blustery wind is one of them The leaves off a tree is another Remember that November, December Every month is beautiful As my wife said the other day We had to remind ourselves that But we had an incredible November And so, you know Remember we're just little bacteria On the surface of this planet That we're gradually ruining for ourselves So enjoy it while we've got it um, And... Go someplace dramatic like uh, the Outlook by Logan Airport and enjoy your Thanksgiving. So thanks for listening to Landline. Remember, keep telling other people. Keep telling a friend. Send them um, send them a, a letter in the mail with the URL on it. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Adios. Bye, Saul.
1: See you later. Landline is hosted, written, and produced by Alex McKay. The best thing you can do to support the show is tell a friend. Find other episodes of Landline on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and talkforaliving.com. Call the Landline at 617-744-1895. Music by the Pitchfork Revolution out of Bend, Oregon. We're taking this show to the top, baby. listening to Landline.